0: This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Roger Ebert, who died of cancer on April 4, 2013, was probably America's best-known film critic. Movie critic for the Chicago Sun-Times from 1967 until his death, his television career began on PBS in 1975, co-hosted with Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune. Through several iterations, Ebert and Siskel worked together until Siskel's death in 1999. Roger Ebert continued on TV with several co-hosts until he paired finally with Richard Roper, retiring in 2007. Along the way, Roger Ebert wrote several books, including his four-book great movies series, a best-selling memoir, Life Itself, which became a film, various yearly guides, and several collections of his reviews. His website, rogerebert.com, is still a leading compendium of new and old reviews. I interviewed Roger Ebert three times in this third interview, recorded in the KPFA studios on March 3, 2005. He talks about his latest book, The Great Movies 2, about new restorations, and about his sojourn into political commentary. The Great Movies 1, which came out three years ago, Roger Ebert, It's not just the 100 best movies, it's 100 great movies. Yeah,
1: I really made a point of that because I don't believe in lists and I don't know how you can rank them. So The Great Movies 2 is not the second team. Uh, It's not like the second 100 greatest movies. There are movies in Part 2 like Children of Paradise, Rules of the Game, Cries and Whispers that anyone would, would recognize as great classics, Birth of a Nation. Basically, I come upon the movies by mood, by opportunity, or because they're restored, or because I can see them in a theater, or whatever. Some of the choices I found questionable. Ah, Yes, I'm sure you did, yes.
0: I can understand, kind of understand, Saturday Night Fever, because it was kind of a tribute to Gene Sistel. Mm -hmm. West Side Story, though, I love the dancing. Dancing is spectacular. You know, if you
1: read my review of West Side Story, you'll find it's kind of critical. Which made me wonder, why is it in this list, then? I think as a movie, it's, a, it's an icon, it's a landmark, and people refer to it, and it's important. And the dancing is fabulous. I mean, the challenge, how does a gang dance? And the fact that the, the dancers had to actually also be the actors, and they do things like, at one point, there's a dance scene where they climb over a chain-link fence. I felt that the supporting actors were so much better than the leads. Rita Marino is really the soul of that movie, not Natalie Wood. But also in my review of The Color Purple, I point out that while I'm really, really, really involved in the characters played by Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey, some of the other characters, especially the male characters, are really one-dimensional and almost comic caricatures. Yet The Color Purple never fails to move me emotionally. And so I, I think there's a room for an imperfect movie in this book. And then there are also movies that are just purely popular entertainments. And I was writing to my editor uh, at Random House, uh, Jerry Howard. I said, do you think we should keep a Christmas story in the book? And he says, if you take it out, I resign.
0: I think Christmas story is perfectly fine. That's okay with you. Well, I guess, It's a
1: kind of movie that, I mean, I probably have seen it 10 times. Whenever you mention it to people, they smile. I mean, it doesn't have to be the Bicycle Thief, to be a great movie. That's why I have no
0: problems with a movie like Say Anything. I question a little bit Goldfinger.
1: Well, I felt that there should be a Bond picture. Why? Because he's the most successful series hero in the history of film, more so even than Tarzan, because Goldfinger is the best movie, because it's a cultural icon, and because I felt like putting, putting a Bond in. picture. And for that matter, uh, the bank dick is in the in the book, and uh, the bank dick is not... It's a very flawed and uneven movie, but I felt that I wanted to include W.C. Fields. Just as in the first book I had, The Marx Brothers, there are people who don't know who W.C. Fields was, and he never made a perfect movie. In this movie, he starts out, he walks out of the house and suddenly becomes a movie director, and then 10 minutes later they forget about that, and he never does anything more with that again. I mean, it's really confusing, but uh, he's W.C. Fields, and it's very funny, so that's why that's in there.
0: It struck me in reading it, and as I'm talking to you, that... To some degree, as opposed to the first book, I mean, I looked through it and I saw a couple of choices that might be a little controversial, mm-hmm. but the choices by and large were pretty straightforward. It, it looked to me in this book that you were doing something a little different, and that's that by getting us to read a book called Great Movies 2, you were turning us on to things we would never have heard of, as well as reappraising, because a lot of these movies are restorations. Mm-hmm. Is that correct?
1: It's true. Uh, some of the movies that you have heard of that are in this book, like Rules of the Game and Children of Paradise, are in there because they finally came out in great DVD editions. And I realized, for example, with Rules of the Game, which everybody thinks is one of the best movies ever made, that I had never really seen it before in crummy 16-millimeter prints or lousy tapes. And the disc finally allowed me to appreciate the deep focus. There are movies in there like Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia by Sam Peck and Paul that was detested by almost every critic who ever reviewed it. And I submit to you, it's new on DVD, that if you look at it, you might be surprised how much you like it and what a good movie it is. I spoke last month with David Thompson, Mm -hmm. and he has
0: made similar comments about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid.
1: Mm -hmm. Which is also a movie that a lot of people diss, yeah.
0: At the time, yeah.
1: And there's a movie in there, The Fall of the House of Usher, which most people have not even heard of. But it's uh, a key moment in French surrealism, directed by Jean Epstein, and the associate director was uh, Louis Bunuel.
0: And that was a silent film?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are actually people who go through these books, renting the ones they haven't seen. And the Library Media Project has most of the DVDs available at public libraries. It's a chance to get off the beaten path, which was the whole idea in the first place, because I realized as I talked to students in in high schools and colleges and things that they didn't really have a sense of the past. When you and I went to school, they had film societies and they had repertory theaters. San Francisco had six or seven repertory theaters. And home video destroyed that avenue. Now, when I went to the film society at the University of Illinois, I didn't go because I wanted to see a Kiru by Kurosawa. I went because it was 25 cents. And then I saw Akiru by Kurosawa. And by the time I got out of college, I'd seen a lot of great movies. But today, it doesn't quite work that way. And so I felt maybe these books would encourage people to uh, go back beyond the last 10 years.
0: That was my thought. There are three movies here that I didn't even hear of. I've never even heard of. What are they? The Blue Kite is one of them. Mm Touche Pa...
1: Touche Pa au Grisby.
0: Is the second one. And the third was Grave of the Fireflies.
1: Grave of the Fireflies. Well... You're in for a treat with those three. Now I know you have questions about some of my selections, but you're gonna enjoy all three of those. Two Chapat Grisby stars Jean Gabin, it was directed by him. Jacques Becker, who is a great French director basically of crime. And it's about a an older crook who has tries to pull off one last big job. The title translates as Don't Touch the Loot. And he has a good friend who he's been carrying for years. You know, the guy is kinda of dumb and makes mistakes, but he likes him. At one point, he says, I paid for every tooth in his head. It's more a movie about the end of a career and the end of a life and a sadness and a resignation at the end than it is about crime. Grave of the Fireflies is a Japanese animated film that is the only animated film I've ever seen that usually makes people cry. It's about a brother and a sister who survived the firebombing of Kobe and try to survive amid the ruins. And uh, it's not a comedy, believe me. Blue Kite is from China. It's the story of a family before, during, and after the Cultural Revolution and how the Cultural Revolution reaches into the courtyard of this household in Peking and affects the lives of every single person there. There's a a heartbreaking scene where the the boy's father is a teacher, and they have a, a meeting of the school faculty And he gets up to leave to go to the men's room. And while he's away, it's been decided that somebody at the school has to be dismissed for political incorrectness. And When he comes back, they're all looking at him, and he realizes he picked the wrong time to go to the toilet. And he's been selected. Now he loses his job, and he's sent a 1,000 miles away to do hard labor. It's a very good movie, The Blue Kite.
0: You mentioned two Hitchcock films in there, mm-hmm. Strangers on a Train and Rear Window. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, in the review of Strangers on the Train, you list what you consider to be the five best Hitchcock movies. Rear Window isn't one of them.
1: Well, but I have the others in the first book, Vertigo and Psycho and uh, probably... Um, Notorious? Notorious is certainly one of them. Strangers on a Train is number four, and, and number five might be Shadow of a Doubt*. That's the one, Yeah. yeah. And that will also be coming up one of these days. I'll get to that. I mean, if you get to the number six best Hitchcock film, it's still pretty good.
0: You get to the number 10th. The best one, I think, is Vertigo. Why do you single out Vertigo?
1: You know, I have this thing that I do where we go through films one shot at a time, using a stop-action approach and taking maybe six six to ten hours over a period of days. Right, yeah. And if you look at Vertigo that way, you realize what a great film it is. I mean, there's a sequence at the beginning of about 15 minutes of silence where you just follow him around. It's about looking. So is Rear Window, but Vertigo even more so. And the complexity of the emotions. Here is a man in love with a woman who doesn't exist. And he uses the woman who played that woman to reproduce his lost love. And she knows, but he doesn't know, that she was deceiving him. But she loves him enough to do it for him again. So that Kim Novak is looking at him realizing, this man that I love loves somebody that I'm not and doesn't realize that I created that person. Then you have... The very interesting scene, which is not a lot of people see this movie and don't realize this, you know, she jumps into the river into the sea next to the Golden Gate Bridge. Right, yeah. He jumps in and pulls her out and she's unconscious, takes her home, she wakes up the next morning in his bed, and she looks over and she sees her clothes hanging there. So it's obvious that he brought her home, undressed her and put her to bed. She puts on a gown and she comes out into the living room, Scotty is the character's name, and they sit in front of the fireplace and they talk. And it's obvious that An attraction is growing between them. Here's what nobody really stops to think about. She was not unconscious.
0: When he pulled her out?
1: No, she faked falling in. Therefore, whatever happened when he undressed her and put her to bed was such that the next morning she likes him. I do not know what happened. I do not think they had sex. But whatever he did showed to her that he had a good heart. And people never, it never occurs to anyone that she's not unconscious.
0: But that's the crux of where the movie turns because from then on, the fact that she has fallen in love with him makes her willingness to be transformed when she's Judy make sense.
1: Mm -hmm. And then that scene where they kiss and the camera whirls around and suddenly the backdrop changes, it's emotionally very complex for a Hitchcock film.
0: The ending, was that always the uh, intended ending?
1: Yes, and of course it's awkward. The nun comes out of nowhere. She screams and falls out of the tower. Uh, The timing is funny. It's just not well handled. I mean, it, it works. Certainly the point is that Scotty is standing there looking at her dead body below and realizing that he really messed up. I mean, it's like his final comeuppance morally so that the ending really works from a moral or emotional point of view. But the choreography of the nun appearing out of the shadows... Is a bit awkward. I, I think that Hitchcock should have, could have handled it a little more smoothly and effectively.
0: I think some of Hitchcock's endings seem to be a little odd. I mean, the ending of the Birds, of course, in particular, we know about that one. Well,
1: he claimed in his long, long book-length interview with Truffaut that the movie was perfect when the screenplay was finished. He would storyboard them every shot, and when he had the script and the storyboard finished, the film was perfect. And then it was all downhill because he had to work with actors. Obviously, he famously said, we're like cattle. Hitchcock made some bad films. Oddly enough, right toward the end of his career, he made a great film called Frenzy in England. There's a scene where he establishes that the killer lives upstairs over a pub, and he takes a woman upstairs and kills her. And then later, the next time, he takes a woman upstairs and the camera stays outside and never goes in. It's kind of a masterstroke, because you realize in your imagination that the longer the camera stays outside, the worse things are becoming.
0: Roger Ebert, one of the focuses of this book, The Great Movies 2, is the reconstruction and the restoration. It seems like as we learn more, more and more movies that we thought were so-so or not interesting
1: turn out to have been masterpieces. Well, the Criterion Collection is doing the best work on DVD, although the studios now are getting into the act, Warner Brothers in particular. They have a little demonstration on their disc of Children of Paradise— where they show what they started with and what they ended up with. Before, restoration before digital involved finding pieces of film and putting them together and getting the best print you could find. But now what they can do essentially with a computer is interpolate what's missing and put it back in. And while a purist might say that this is not exactly the same thing, the fact is when you look at Children of Paradise on their DVD, it is pristine and flawless, and none of it looks at all distracting. On the contrary, you get absorbed in the film because you're not distracted by the scratches and the fact that it's faded and washed out and the scenes are missing and frames are missing. So a film like that is seen anew. In Rules of the Game, uh, it uses deep-focus photography, and there's a famous sequence in the upstairs corridor of the country house where people enter the shot in the foreground, in the middle distance, and in the background. Or they may appear in the foreground, go down the stairs, and turn up again in the back, having climbed up the back stairs. Several parallel plots are going along at the same time. I've seen the film in 16 millimeter. I've seen it on tape. I've seen it in revival. Until I saw it on this DVD, I couldn't clearly see what was happening in that corridor.
0: That all that stuff was yeah, going on. Yeah,
1: and now suddenly I'm looking at it and I'm saying, this is a great scene. I, I stopped and I backed it up. I showed it at Boulder last year, the University of Colorado. I, yeah. show, I take a week every year at Boulder and we go through a film, a shot at a time. We must have spent 40 minutes going back and forth through that scene. It is such a great scene.
0: I keep thinking that I was, I guess, fortunate. I avoided Rules of the Game until the DVD mm-hmm. came out and then... You know, I'm watching it, and it feels like I'm watching this
1: uber Robert Altman movie from 1939. You know, well, it was the inspiration for Gosford Park, and Robert Altman says, for me, it, you know, it all started with the rules of the game, and Gosford Park is rules of the game by Altman, but, you know, it it placed number two in the sight and sound poll of the greatest films of all time, which is that poll they take of the world's filmmakers every 10 years. Right. Yet, you never ran into anyone who said, oh, I love that film, because if you really quiz them you found out they'd never really connected with it. And I had seen it, I, I even have the laser disc at home by criterion, but they that was not restored. Right. It was just a laser disc. So I had seen it three, four, five times, I'd taught it in class, but I didn't feel a great love and passion for it until I saw it on the D V D and I thought, Now it's like the scales have fallen from my eyes. I can see this film. It is a wonderful film. I recently watched
0: a tape of Renoir's The River and Mm -hmm. didn't love it, Mm -hmm. didn't like it because I couldn't hear most of the sound Mm -hmm. and it was blurry. It's just come out on DVD DVD and I wonder, should I rent it again? Am, Am I missing something?
1: Yes, you should. I've seen it on Laserdisc yeah, and I've also seen it in the 35 millimeter print that Scorsese loaned to the Virginia Film Festival. Scorsese watches that film, he told me, at least three times a year. And I can easily believe that in the version you saw it in, because I saw it years ago and I thought, what is this all about? I think it's worth going back and looking at it again. Uh, you did turn
0: me on last time you were here to eight and a half, which I hadn't mm-hmm. gotten. Mm-hmm. And you, you said a couple of things. I went and re- watched it, loved it, absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. So thank you very much for that. If you were to pick a couple of movies that people kind of go, eh, you know, I don't know about it. I don't really get it. And you could say... The magic words like you did with me for eight and a Mm -hmm. half what movies would those be and what would the magic words let me look at the
1: table of contents oh hazard balthazar the the hazards or the life or the chances of balthazar it's a movie by Bresson about a donkey and it's told from the donkey's point of view but it's not a disney donkey it isn't a cute donkey and it doesn't have reaction shots and it doesn't roll its eyes and it doesn't seem to really understand what you're saying it's a real donkey And just follows Balthazar through its life. Various owners, some are cruel, some are nice. It's a great, great film. And at the end, you have tears in your eyes. You see, it doesn't believe that donkeys can think or that they have personalities or that they have ideas or that they know they're donkeys. It does believe that donkeys can feel and that they know the difference between a nice day and a bad day and being hungry and not being hungry and people who are kind to them and people who are mean to them and doing the job which is satisfactory to them, or working too hard, which is tiring. So that's a film. That's definitely a film. Some people would probably wonder why um, Beat the Devil you know, by John Huston with Humphrey Bogart and Peter Laurie and Robert Morley and Gina DeL- Lola-Brigida. What's so great about that film? Well, the great thing about it is all those people got together with a with Truman Capote writing the screenplay every night for the next day's scenes and made it up as they went along in a happy-go-lucky, carefree fashion that is one of the goofiest and silliest films you'll ever want to see.
0: Touch of Evil is a great film, mm-hmm. but I recently saw the restored version. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walter Murch, I think, did mm-hmm. an incredible film. Mm-hmm. It just—small changes just add up in that film. Yeah.
1: It was actually uh, an attempt to reconstruct Wells' original cut.
0: Will there ever be— is it possible? Might it ever turn up?
1: And the end of The Magnificent Ambers. Yeah. Well, it hasn't turned up yet. That would be The Holy Grail, That and the Missing Six Reels of Greed by von Schoheim.
0: Roger Ebert, a San Francisco critic named Mick LaSalle, has written two books mm-hmm. about pre-code film, and mm-hmm. I've gotten into it. Do you go that far back and watch a lot of pre-codes?
1: I haven't. Made it a point to look at pre-code films, but I've seen a few of them. For example, Trouble in Paradise by Lubitsch, which is a very adult film. We're now entering another pre-code period where a new code is going to come in. You think? There is a group of people in this country who really want us all to be held at the level of juveniles. And uh, it's kind of an insult to adults. But uh, the the $500,000 fines that the FCC is going to levy against certain words or expressions on the radio or television you see, if you find them $5,000 or $10,000, let's, let's assume that they have the right to fine because they're public airways. Okay. You know, if you get fined $10,000, your management is going to be mad at you, and they're going to tell you, don't do that anymore. If you're fined $500,000, you're out of a job, and so is your manager. I mean, it's like a, a, a nuclear bomb. $500,000 for one word, and only 38 of our Congress people voted against it. Most of the Democrats voted for it, too. What are they thinking of? Now there's a bill to apply the same strictures to cable television. It's as if a very small minority of people who have an extremely rigid idea about what is acceptable are using the law in order to limit the freedom the rest of us have to see and say what we choose.
0: The popularity of films in early mm-hmm. 1934 showed nobody wanted the code uh, mm-hmm. to be enforced. There Except was a code. It really it
1: was the Catholic Church.
0: Uh, It was Catholics and Protestants Mm -hmm. both. But it also had a lot to do with the cowardice on the part of the owners of the studios who Mm -hmm. were Jewish and who feared, this was 1934, Mm -hmm. the rise of anti-Semitism and that they would be blamed for cultural depravity in America. To that extent, would Hollywood cave in or are they fighting back?
1: today today you mean well for example when Passion of the Christ came out and didn't get a nomination for an Oscar people like Michael Medved took to the airwaves to accuse them of being anti anything that was Christian actually they're anti anything that opened last February the only February opening that ever won an Oscar was Silence of the Lambs because they usually nominate films that came out in the fall there's a wonderful book about the early days of Hollywood and the Jewish pioneers by Neil Gabler Who really zeroes in on the fact that they wanted to be, they wanted to send out the image that they were Americans. They were not foreigners. And many of our images of America were created by Jewish immigrants who were more American than anyone else for that reason, for self protective coloration, among other things. And also probably because they were sincere enough, but they were concerned about censorship in that way. Today, it's not a racial thing in terms of management. They're very afraid of any very loud minority group. The reason that the mainline studios didn't make Passion of the Christ in the first place was because they didn't want to deal with religion at all. Not that they were anti-Christian or didn't like Jesus, but that it's just better to make a comedy you know, with Adam Sandler and, uh, and four-letter word jokes that I can't say for use of, without being fined $500,000, than to make a movie that is about anything. You know, the five nominees for best picture this year were all films nobody wanted to make. And that happens year after year. Monster. Monster was going to go to DVD. We did it three weeks early on our show. And our show actually, when our show played, the studio said, let's take it out theatrically. Frequently, they make a great movie and they don't know they've made a great movie.
0: Well, I think that's always been the case. And uh, certainly in this, in great movies, too, we see several cases. But One thing that you and Siskel and now you and Roper can do is you can affect at least some kind of change by promoting these films on the air. I mean, that gives you an advantage over the average citizen or even somebody who's talking about it on a place like KPFA.
1: It's a responsibility because it's the only television show that will tell you that a movie is bad. You know, if you watch most entertainment, there are critics on various stations. That's true. But I'm talking about like a regular weekly show or a daily show. The entertainment programs are all about, um, we're going to show you the new trailer. First look at the new trailer. Or um, this is coming out next week. Or here's a hotel room interview with a star. Or here's some shots of their wedding, their divorce, their trip to the beach. Everything except, is the movie any good or not? It's like they never let that last shoe drop.
0: Do you get complaints from the Christian right?
1: Sometimes. I get complaints from all over the place. Right now I'm considered to be a racist because I didn't like Diary of a Mad Black Woman. And uh, I don't think it's a good movie. doesn't make me a racist, but, you know, that's—I've uh, been unpopular recently. Right now, I'm unpopular with some African-American churchgoers because Tyler Perry is this Christian playwright who is actually the most successful playwright in American history, even though most people in the dominant culture have never heard of him. And uh, The Diary of a Mad Black Woman stars him in drag as a character in Medea, who was beloved— on the so-called Chitlin Circuit. That's what they call it. I know it sounds offensive, but it's called the Chitlin Circuit in the black community. Okay, then also, a lot of the people in the disabled community are mad at me because I liked uh, Million Dollar Baby, and they feel that the ending of that movie is seriously wrong. I agree with them. I don't think that Frankie should have done what he does either at the end of that movie, but I believe that he would have done it. And so that's my standard. What kind of movies will we get if the characters could only do what we approve of? But
0: that brings up something... Tim Robbins was saying on, uh, on Bill Maher, which was that it seems usually that it's only the right wing. I mean, you're mentioning disabled mm-hmm. people, but it's only the right wing that really complains about political stuff. The left generally leaves it alone, but maybe that's not true.
1: Well, let me tell you something that I know is probably going to sound biased. I get a lot of email because my website has a feedback link. The right wing, generally speaking, sends me hate mail insulting me. I mean, I've lost 100 pounds and I'm still being called fat by people who haven't checked me in the last two years. I'm a fat pig. I'm this and that. I should do this and that to myself and anatomically. It's invective. It's, it's hateful and it's vile. The left wing, when they disagree, send you these endless arguments. You get an email that's four pages long and you really don't understand the World Bank and its function in the third world. So let me try to explain it to you. So that's a phenomenon, that the the left wants to reason you, with you, and use logic, and the right just wants to call you names. And I'm using that as a generalization, but to help me God, if you look at my email, you'll see that that's what's there.
0: Roger Reber, that brings us, say, into politics per se, because you have done political commentary. Mm -hmm. Isn't that, to some degree, the state of how America works? The right wing just screams and rants and hates and the left tries to explain itself. Well,
1: there's a there's an old-fashioned right wing. Now, I'm probably going to make you mad by telling you this. See, I don't think Schwarzenegger is such a bad guy. He plays by the rules we used to play by. There used to be Republicans and Democrats, and we disagreed, and we had our arguments, and maybe a Democrat got elected, maybe a Republican got elected. They were civilized. Now it's scorched earth. I mean, the Bush uh, enemies list— there's this website called Discover the, I think it's called discovertheenemy.org, something like that, that David Horowitz has, linking people. I'm linked to a terrorist that I've never heard of. They have all this linkages to show that all of the people on the left are all in a big conspiracy. and uh, it's, it's, it's McCarthyism. If you're not their friend, you're their enemy. You see, I, it seems to me that somebody like Schwarzenegger is still existing within the American tradition of the two-party system, And we have elections every four years and we take our votes and we have our representatives and fine instead of let's destroy them. I mean the Newt Gingrich and uh, uh, the Karl Rove approach is we would be happier if there was was no opposition. They don't really seem to to really appreciate the two-party system. I think they would be happier if everybody was with them.
0: Well, that makes them fascists, doesn't it?
1: Well, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. (laughs) right. (laughs) I'm not going to say that But I mean, a guy like Schwarzenegger Sure, uh, I might vote for him I might vote against him He's a Republican I could consider voting for Under certain circumstances In a given election He's a reasonable person I may not agree with him all the time But he exists in the same political universe That I exist in Have you met him? Yes, many many times And? There used to be a film festival in Dallas, Texas Where film critics invited films And I invited Pumping Iron And he came and it was shown twice. And between the screenings, he was in the green room reading his textbooks for his business class. I said, What are you doing? He said, Well, if the acting doesn't turn out, I can always fall back on real estate. So later he made Conan, and he came to Chicago to be interviewed. I said, How is it going? He said, Do you remember our conversation in Dallas? And I said, Yes. And he said, Well, so far, I've still made more money on real estate. I mean, the sight of him back there with his yellow legal pad taking notes for his MBA gave me a different idea of him than the muscles. And I realized then that he was a man who was very ambitious and wasn't stupid. And I've always liked him as a person, and he kids himself. And uh, I'm beginning to sound like, you know, I'm a big supporter of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, the fact is, he doesn't offend me at all. He exists, as I said, in the old days. Like in Illinois, you had two famous senators, Dirksen and Douglas. Dirksen was the Republican majority leader. And Douglas, Paul Douglas, was a great fighting liberal. They used to go on the radio once a week from WBBM in Chicago and have a debate for half an hour. We always listed, listened in our household. Once a week, the two of them debated things. They talked to each other. I mean, now it's... it's The Bush administration doesn't want to talk to anyone unless it's some phony, baloney guy that they pay to stand up and ask prepared questions.
0: Roger Rebert, I think... Entertainment and politics are mixed. Mm -hmm. When we read Frank Rich every week in the Times, Mm -hmm. we see that. As a movie critic, an entertainment critic, do you see any way that the entertainment industry can lead us out of the abyss, or are they just kind of diving in?
1: By and large, the studios want to make money, and they can make money by making special effects pictures for teenage boys, and by making horror films, and by making raunchy comedies. And that's, by and large, what they do. The Oscar pictures, you know, the, the story is that Oscar season starts at the Toronto Film Festival the weekend after Labor Day. Actually, it starts a week earlier at Telluride, which is run by your own Tom Luddy right here in Berkeley. But anyway, that's kind of under the radar. So we get good pictures in the fall, but they're pictures no studio cared about. Ray, which looks like it might be a mainstream picture. I mean, after all, Ray Charles, turned down by every studio in Hollywood, some of them twice under different managements financed independently. Hotel Rwanda, completely independently financed. No studio cared about that. Even Million Dollar Baby, Warner Brothers, where Clint Eastwood has made millions of dollars for 25 years, rejected it. And it took independent money out of Chicago to get that movie going. So the good movies have to make themselves. The bad movies get made.
0: That creates this two-tiered system Mm -hmm. and the two-tiered system is that the good movies are made on a shoestring with no support and the bad movies get all the money they want
1: yes but sometimes they certainly lose a lot of money i mean i wonder how much money alexander will lose
0: well given its foreign sales not as much as we would think and given dbd van helsing may actually make money well
1: it may but you know that the the thing that i'm proud about with our television show is that we review independent films, foreign films, and documentaries. And we will review a film that is only playing in two or three markets. And sometimes we review a film before it opens because we're afraid it might not open, like Monster. I said, let's go with this right now, three weeks early. This is one of the greatest performances that I have ever seen. I didn't talk with Richard about it. I talked to the producer. Apparently Richard talked to the producer too because he agreed with me, but we don't talk to each other because that would be wrong before we do the show. We went early with My Dinner with Andre a long time ago, uh, a movie called One Fault, False Move we went early with.
0: The only Oscar winner I remember that never actually made it into films was a movie with Jessica Lang called Blue Skies. Mm. Was that before you
1: guys were doing no, it? No, I've, I've seen it, yeah.
0: That was after you guys started doing yeah, your uh-huh, show, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, that didn't happen, but I guess now you're a little bit more hip to it.
1: Yeah. Or, it's important. Somebody was saying at a book signing today, oh, I missed the dog of the week. Remember years ago, we had the Dog of the Week. We decided to drop the Dog of the Week because we felt we'd rather use that time to review another movie. And we will review independent films, low-budget films, foreign films. We will do that on our show, and I'm proud of that. Our show is not necessary to review Spider-Man 2. Even though it was a great superhero movie, I mean, you have to be able to understand that Within each genre, there are better and worse films. Spider-Man 2 was the best superhero movie since Superman, so I was happy to say that. But on the other hand, we'll also review something like Born in the Brothels.
0: Do you sometimes feel as if it's a little bit weird to be giving a thumbs down to a movie that doesn't quite work with great ambition and giving thumbs up to a movie with no ambition that kind of does work?
1: There's a contradiction that's involved in any rating system. You know, I hate the stars. In the paper, I give one to four stars. And people say, well, how could you give this one three stars and this one two and a half stars? And I just, all I can say is it's relative. It's relative within genre and expectations. Because if you gave Citizen Kane four stars and Rules of the Game four stars, then would you also give Million Dollar Baby four stars or would it only be three stars, you see, compared? I just prefer not to even discuss that, you know. And the thumbs up and thumbs down. uh, Siskel's argument was, when you talk to a friend, they want to know, should I go see it or not? They don't want to know, you should go see it three quarters of the way. They don't want to know about two and a half stars. You know, they want to know yes or no. That's what you want your friend to tell you. And, or at least your friend, if they're a good friend, will say, I hated it, but you, you would probably like it. Now, a good critic will write a review where they either like the movie or don't like the movie, but at least the review will allow you to decide that you might like the movie. And one of the wisest things I ever heard was from Bob Shea, the head of New Line. And they make a lot of horror movies. In addition to pictures like Lord of the Rings, they also make Friday the 13th. We have never liked a Friday the 13th movie. And they continue to show them to us as critics and give us clips so that we can trash the next one. He says, you guys don't understand. He says, the people going to Friday the 13th movies, they don't expect you to like them. If we get our movie reviewed on your show, you can say it's total crap, but you have to show some clips from the film, and people watching at home are going to say, oh, you know, it's another Friday the 13th movie, and they're going to go see it. They don't care that it's bad. He's right. Because if you are a person who likes the Friday the 13th movies, then I want you to go. If you have a good time in a movie, I'm happy for you. I do not want you to have a bad time in a movie. So if that's the kind of movie you like, more power to you. Roger Ebert,
0: do you think uh, Miramax disappearing from the Disney pantheon is going to make any difference.
1: Well, Disney has lost or will lose both Miramax and Pixar within a fairly short time, and they were both sources of great creativity within the Disney empire. I've known I've known Harvey Weinstein in an odd way I have known him. I mean, he's the only mogul left who kind of is like the legends, bigger than life and yet right there on the floor in your face, sweating and shouting, waving a cigarette around and oftentimes, more often than not, backing good movies. He was criticized for fighting too hard for his movies at Oscar time. I say, is that a sin? If you're a distributor and you have a movie and you think it deserves an Oscar, fight for it. Don't be genteel. You know, get out there and tell people, don't be modest. They generated a lot of good movies, also some bad ones, so what? I think that the Weinsteins will surface somewhere, somehow. Right now, they're releasing all the films they had on the shelf, that they hadn't released. They're getting them all out. We're gonna see a lot of Miramax pictures in the next six months. If I were Paramount or Fox or someplace, I wouldn't mind making a deal with with the Weinstein brothers because they're, they're film people. I mean, I've seen Harvey in the little theaters at Cannes by himself looking at, he was, I walked into a movie called Strictly Ballroom and he was the only other person in the room and he bought it and of course it became a big hit, but he was willing. He wasn't just sitting out there on the beach you know having caviar and talking to his cronies he was in that theater to see that movie
0: Roger Ebert we talked 3 years ago about what's the best place to see a movie mm-hmm. and uh you know you said if you're going to be at home you should get a projector and i wound up getting a widescreen tv and i'm very well, Larry, happy well, with that. well
1: that's it. the better the picture and the better the sound the better for you
0: i went to see million dollar baby at the metreon on a big huge screen there you are yeah and I keep wondering would i have loved it as much and i did love it if i'd seen it at home on my little wide screen
1: i'm going to give you a couple of puzzlers almost everyone who saw lost in translation in a theater liked it and at least according to what people tell me most of the people who saw it on dvd did not like it i think it's because it was a silent meditative mood piece and on the big screen you got drawn in and on the little screen you were left outside on the other hand more people like Moulin Rouge on DVD than in theaters. And I think that might have been because it was such an overwhelming visual and sound experience that the DVD allowed you to contain it more easily and comprehend it. So they're two different mediums, they really are.
0: And then either medium has its own
1: reasons to go. I guess, yeah. I I know that I loved Lost in Translation. And people, you said, it was so good. And then we rented it and we didn't like it at all. Well, then I began to realize nobody who rented it seemed to like it. And yet when it was in theaters, everybody was saying, oh, I went to see that and I loved it. So what's going on? It's the same movie.
0: Roger Ebert, what can we do? What do you do to ensure that freedom remains in the United States? You're in a position where you can and you can't do something overtly, I guess.
1: I'll tell you, my political opinions sometimes find their way into my reviews and almost always to negative purpose. i become convinced that our society is so polarized that when you express an opinion, you don't change anyone's mind. I, for example, Harvey Weinstein told me that Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11 was going to, to win the election for Kerry. In retrospect, I don't think it changed one single vote. I don't think very many Bush supporters went to see it. And their minds weren't changed. I think it was, it was attended mostly by people who didn't like Bush. I think that the most effective thing you can do is just reason for what you think is right uh, without being overt about your politics. I reviewed a movie called The Take, which is about the movement in Argentina by workers to reoccupy closed factories where they've been fired and reopen those factories and run them as workers' cooperatives. And instead of getting into a fight, a big argument about the World Bank and... Uh, the International Monetary Fund, I wrote a review that said basically, gee, I wish I knew more about global economics because I don't, and yet somehow this seems to make sense because these factories are open again and the people have jobs and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Usually when I write an overtly political review, I get nothing but hate mail. Oddly enough, all of the emails I got on the take were favorable, and none of them were particularly ideological. I didn't get letters from people saying, oh, thanks for taking on the World Bank, or yes, the internet, you know. It was more like, that was really a very readable review, and I want to see that movie because it was interesting to me that the workers are trying to do that in Argentina. Not that, gee, I've now become a Marxist, or, uh, oh, the oligarchs who closed the factories. None of that. It was just, I wrote about the movie as a movie about these people and what they were doing, and that's how people read it. And I thought maybe I learned something from that, that maybe that's the right approach instead of being overtly ideological, just tell the story. And then
0: people don't have an attitude toward you and maybe they're open-minded. Well,
1: and also you're not categorizing the movie in a way that makes them think they know all about it before they see it.
0: Roger Rebert, three years ago, uh, I asked you at the end of the interview, if you could name a couple of movies that people should really see that may not have even opened yet uh, that we need to kind of keep our eyes out for. You mentioned a little movie that had just opened called My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yeah. And we kind of know that that disappeared without a trace. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, it was brand new one. That's right. You know, we reviewed that movie before it was on the radar.
0: Are there any movies like that that you, you've seen at Cannes? Yes.
1: Or, There's a movie directed and starring Miranda July called You and Me and Everybody We Know. I'm not going to try to describe it to you. It's fragile and poetic and beautiful and lovely. There's a scene where a a man and a woman walk down the street and they hardly know each other. And they say, this this walk down the street could be our lives. And that traffic sign could be halfway through our lives. And if we go another block, it'll be the end of our lives. And I don't I can't really do justice. It's one of the most perfectly constructed scenes I've ever seen. It's a wonderful movie. There's a movie coming out called Yes, directed by Sally Potter, starring Joan Allen as a rich woman who meets an immigrant chef at a banquet, and they start having an affair. There's a movie coming out called Off the Map, starring Joan Allen and Sam Elliott. He's depressed. They live live in a marginal adobe hut in the middle of New Mexico, Uh, at the the poverty level, but very happily, with a daughter who's being homeschooled. But he has a summer of depression, and she's trying to deal with it. And an IRS man finds them to see why they have never filed a return, and he never leaves, just moves in with them. Off the Map, directed by Campbell Scott. So those are two Joan Allen movies to look for. Those are three movies that uh, I would recommend.
0: And a year from now, what will win Best Picture?
1: We don't know. You know, if you had asked me on December the 1st what would win best picture, I wouldn't know. Because I walked into the million dollar baby and when I walked out I said the Oscar race has to be reopened. When I walked in I thought the Aviator was going to win for best picture. When I walked out I said no, it's a it's a new ball game now. And so that let's put it this way, the picture that will win for the Oscar next year will probably open sometime between the Toronto Film Festival and Christmas. 3 years ago when
0: we did the interview, Two Blacks had won best actor and actress, and I said, is that a sign of anything? You said, absolutely not. Three years later, we have a best actor and best supporting actor, and the difference now is you didn't even mention they were black on your
1: show. I didn't realize it. I mean, I knew they were black, but I wrote my story for the Sun-Times. Nowhere in the story did I say two African-Americans were among the four winners. Both male prizes went to African-Americans, and it's never happened before. I never mentioned it, and I have to ask myself, because I didn't think I'm not going to mention it. I didn't decide not to mention it. Sometimes you learn things by accident, and what I think I learned is it's not such a big deal. I think that African Americans, without being able to really point at the turning point, have totally entered the mainstream in Hollywood, and certainly, well, they've been in music for years, but... To the point where you don't say, oh, an African-American got nominated for Best Actor. Actually, two of them got nominated. And one of them who got nominated, also got nominated for Supporting Actor. And you had a British uh, person of color, who of African descent. And you had a movie that takes place in Rwanda. And you had a documentary about uh, Tupac Shakur. Very good one. And you had the first film from South Africa to ever be nominated. Which is also the first film in the Zulu language, Yesterday. And that's a film to look for. That's a wonderful film. And you had a host who was African-American. You had Beyonce singing three songs. Now, it's not because America got liberal or, oh, we're colorblind now. It's because these people are good. They deserve to be where they are. And because of that, they are where they are. And there's no longer a system to keep them out. You know, the first Academy Award to a black went to Hattie McDaniel for Gone with the Wind. In those days, they had the Oscars at a banquet. She and her husband had to sit at a table by themselves. They did not sit at a table with white people. And things uh, are different now. It's not that racism has disappeared. It's not that America is perfect. It's that things are evolving. And with every generation, things are getting a little bit better. And if you look at a movie in this book called Birth of a Nation, which is has, has vile racism in it, really, really vile racism, and then you realize that that movie was praised by the President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, then you say, you know, things have changed.
0: You've been listening to an interview with the late film critic Roger Ebert, who died on April 4th, 2013, at the age of 70. It was recorded on March 3rd, 2005, in the KPFA studios while he was on tour for his book, The Great Movies 2. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.